hope you still have your Bibles uh, ready and handy. If you do, you can turn back to Genesis 3, uh, where we just read from. I'm not going to read it to you again, but we're going to be uh, working. Uh, not through the whole Bible, we did that last week, but we will be working more or less Genesis 1 uh, through Genesis 9, which is a lot of ground to cover, but that's okay. Uh, the reason we're working through this stuff is we want to stop and anchor our Christmas experience. We want to make sure that we anchor the incredible, miraculous story of, of God's visitation to earth, of, of Jesus being born to Mary uh, in Bethlehem. We want to make sure that we don't extract that story from the rest of what God's been doing uh, throughout time and space, what God has been doing from the history of creation, from all the history of the cosmos. And last week, uh, we worked really hard to tell the entire story of the Bible in just over 30 minutes and to remind us that God's mission from the very beginning and through the very end is to fill the earth uh, with people who know the love of God, who are intimately, uh, in, intimately related to God, loved by God and returning that love to God with all they are and then teaching others to do the same. But as we saw last week, uh, that that uh, story gets interrupted, it gets broken, and it gets broken really early on in Genesis chapter 3. And so for the next four weeks, um, we're going to work through the history of God's covenants with his people. God makes a series of covenants uh, to, a to Adam and Noah, to Abraham. Uh, then he makes covenants uh, to, to David. And then he promises a new covenant to his prophets. And so this week we're going to work through uh, the, God's covenants to Adam and to Noah. And then next week will be uh, God's covenants to Abraham and David. And then finally, I uh, will work through uh, God's promise of a new covenant and his prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. The reason why is Jesus is, according to the Apostle Paul, the yes and amen to all of God's promises. That every covenant is one more billboard on the highway pointing to Jesus, preparing our hearts for who Jesus is. And if we want to fully embrace and realize the baby, the miracle, the wonder of Christmas, we have to know and we have to meditate on these incredible things. To fully embrace the miracle of Christmas, we have to anchor Christmas first in these covenants to Adam and Noah. And these covenants remind us chiefly that the world Jesus stepped into, the world Jesus came to save, was not a frosty white winter wonderland with dancing snowmen and uh, frothy hot chocolate. There were no like colored incandescent light bulbs or tinseled trees. There were no paper snowflakes hanging around. But Jesus entered into a broken world. Jesus stepped into a cold, dark place. Into an occupied and oppressed country. To two poor peasant parents just trying to scrape by who have to flee for their lives and raise their children in a refugee camp in Egypt, who grows up in a town so poor and backwoods, we're just now figuring out where it was. The only reason the town even like is famous, Nazareth, is because of the Bible. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the history of the written history of the world, except for Christian documents. 
it just wasn't important enough. Jesus entered this world where positions of power belong to the wealthy or to the bully, and sometimes both. And so Christmas, just practically speaking, in a world that is just broken, is hard for a lot of us. And I think if we study God's word, we'll see why it is so hard for us. But we will also see that the things that make Christmas hard, the things that you may be mourning this year as you head towards Christmas, the things that make you sad that it is Christmas, are the very indications that we need Christmas. So the, the pain at Christmas is the proof uh, that Jesus came at Christmas to heal that pain. And so we see over and over again what these things are. The first thing we're going to look at is God's covenant with Adam in this incredible covenant of works. We've talked about it. But God creates Adam and he speaks life into him and he says, Let us make a man in our own image. Male and female, he made them, and then he breathes the breath of God in them, this in, that human beings were created for intimacy and closeness with God, to co-labor with God, to work together with God. We were created for power and dominion and glory, created to hear God's voice like you're hearing my voice now. And God put uh, the man and the woman in the garden, and he, he told them one uh, command, this command not to eat the tree of good and evil. And some of you may struggle with, why did God give a command? Uh, all love has boundaries. Love cannot exist without boundaries. And the, the, the truest test of love, the only way love actually comes to exist is when I respect another person as another person with needs and demands of their own, whether I understand those or not. You may know this in your own relationship with your spouse or your kids, but but the question of will I love Claire is will I love Claire and put her will above my will? Will I let Claire's will trump my will? Even when it doesn't make sense to me. Even when I see no reason to make my bed when I'm going to get back in it at the end of the day. My wife wills that she have a made up bed with lots of extra pillows that are not for sleeping. And so our bed has, it's made up. We have blankets that fold down to the foot of the bed that are only used for sleeping but are not pretty enough to be used for like whatever you do in a bed the rest of the time that no one's in our house. And we have pretty pillows. Because I yield in love to the boundary. But Adam and Eve are deceived and they say, no, we will do what... We want to do. We will be our own kings, our own gods. We will decide. And they don't want to be made in the image of God. They want to be made like God. And, and something terrible happens, what Christians call the fall. This, and the effects of this are cataclysmic. The effects of the fall are something we have always lived inside. And so we cannot imagine something different. But if we could see the world as it actually is, as God sees it, that we live in a war zone. We live in something that spiritually must look like post-atomic bomb in Nagasaki. Everyone covered in wounds and bandages. All of us, uh, the walking wounded. All of us um, with scars and wounds and burns and hurts. All of us walking around broken and needy. The first thing you need to know the first thing we have to remember as a church is that nobody is perfect. 
that nobody in this room or in that world, nobody you meet is perfect or perfectly healthy. That everyone we run into is broken. Every person we run into comes with a whole set of scars and wounds that they're just covering up or they're letting God heal. But none of us get out of this life without scars. And and the first 11 chapters of the Bible try to outline this brokenness for us and the ways that this brokenness will invade our lives. And they're often the ways that we see that they come out, that start to hurt, that start to ache, these scars, these wounds, these broken bones and broken legs and broken hearts and broken souls start to ache around Christmas. So we're going to work through Genesis 3 to see what that is and why these, how these brokenness invades our life. And the first one I want to point to today is maybe Christmas is hard for you this year because of children or parents. Because of your kids or because of your parents. And so if you look back at Genesis 3, you'll see uh, that after uh, the, the man and the woman sin against God, the Lord comes to them and he tells uh, the woman in verse 16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, very severe, and with painful labor you will give birth to children. Maybe for you, this Christmas hurts because you can't have kids. And so when you see all the Christmas specials and when people tell you how this is the greatest time in the world to have kids because they have all the wonder and the glory, and when you see kids singing handbells, it, it hurts. Maybe you're far from your kids, you're distant from your kids, either in, in, in actual uh, literal distance or in emotional distance. Uh, maybe your kids have run away from you. Maybe your parents are the source of pain. Maybe you had abusive parents and so you're estranged from them. Maybe your kids are making bad decisions and you can't be with them this Christmas. Maybe your kids are far from God and so you feel like you can't celebrate the fullness of Christmas with them. Whatever it is, the Bible understands that. And we see it kind of encapsulated in this simple sentence, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. And obviously, like childbirth is very painful, and I know nothing about it. But we miss the point if we localize this pain to just the delivery room because it's the whole of childbearing and child rearing process that is now broken and painful. Let me ask you, what's more painful? The 36 hours of labor or the 36 years watching your daughter wrestle with her addiction? What's more painful, the 20 hours of labor or the 20-year prison sentence handed down to a man who made one bad decision that resulted in someone else dying? who in a moment of rage killed another human being. The pain of labor or of watching kids fight and feud with one another. The separation of your pelvic bones or or the separation of being estranged from a kid because they won't call you back. Or because you had to make the courageous decision to put your child up for adoption. Or because you made mistakes and your kids were removed from your care by your ex, or by the government. How many of us would trade 36 hours of pain to forego any of that? 
The Bible knows all about this. And what's funny is the Bible, after this, mentions labor pains very few times. Like literal labor pains don't show up in the Bible much. You would think that this curse being really integral to the story of the Bible, uh, you would, the Bible would constantly say, and that hurt having that baby because of this. The Bible just doesn't do that. Most often it talks about the labor pains as an analogy or a metaphor. But the Bible is full of parents, parents' heartbreak over their kids. If you think about it, the first kids in the Bible, Cain and Abel, get into a feud. And Cain kills his brother Abel. And their parents have to watch them feud. Watch Cain kill his brother Abel. The very first parents in the Bible buried a child. Something no human being should ever have to do. Something that some of you know and miss this summer. We look in Noah. Noah cusses his youngest son, Ham. Curses him and says, you will be a slave. I wish you were never born. Abraham has to send away Ishmael, his firstborn. Has to kick him out of the family with no inheritance. With no much, nothing but a, a single wine sack full of water. Isaac's two boys feud. Esau and Jacob try to kill each other. Jacob's boys sell Joseph into slavery. We see the infanticide in Israel. We see David's kids are an absolute mess. And they rip the whole nation of Israel apart in two. We see parents have to be heartbroken, 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 heartbroken over the actions and the pain and the agony of their children. That for as much as these people tried to raise their children in the fear of the Lord, their children make terrible decisions. And every parent knows this. Every parent knows what it's like to be heartbroken over the pain your child has experienced or disappointment over the, decision, the pain that your child has inflicted. And even if you don't know it firsthand, you know what it's like to be always worried that it might happen tomorrow. And Jesus knows this because Jesus lived this life. Jesus experienced the trauma of the birth canal. He entered and left this world bathed in his own blood. Raised by sinners. <laughs> I love that. Jesus, raised by sinners. Like he knows what it's like to have parents who make bad decisions. He also knows what it's like to know that you're smarter than your parents and to actually be smarter than your parents. Something I don't know anything about. Like, I've never been there. He knows the trauma of his mom thinking he's crazy. And his brothers thinking he's crazy. Maybe for you, it's parents. This relationship between parents and kids has been broken by sin. Maybe you had terrible dad, terrible mom. The Bible knows all about that. We see over and over again that there's just terrible dads in the Bible. I find it fascinating uh, that Adam doesn't say a word in the Bible after the fall. He never talks to his boys. He never talks to his wife. Maybe for you, the pain doesn't come from your kids, but it comes from a, a marriage. That Christmas is hard because of some issue related to marriage. And we see that in verse 16 again. It says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Maybe for you, Christmas is hard because you're not married and you want to be. Maybe Christmas is hard because you've gone through a divorce and this will be the first Christmas separated. Maybe it's because you went through a divorce a while ago and it's still difficult to figure out who gets the kids for Christmas. 
Maybe it's hard for you because your parents went through a divorce. And it still is annoying to have to go to four different houses to figure out how that works and the family dynamics and to be put in the middle between people who won't talk to each other. Maybe it's because you're unhappily married. And you're just going through the motions, but you feel alone in everything you do from setting up the Christmas tree to cooking the ham. Verse 16 says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you or lord over you. This is an incredibly awful picture. You see, before this, the picture we have of Adam and Eve, the only real picture we have of them is of Adam singing love songs to his wife. Adam delighting in his wife. He, he writes the first poetry in the Bible for his wife. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He bursts into song and he delights in her. He cherishes her. He lifts her up and praises her. And now it says he will lord over her. No more love poetry. Now he oppresses her. He doesn't know how to love her anymore. I told you that Adam names Eve. And it's the last thing that he names. All we know about Adam after the fall, all the Bible says he does. This husband's like, Wives, this may resonate with you. It broke my heart this week. All it says about Adam is it says, Adam made love to his wife. I guess all Adam does after the fall is make love to his wife. It's the only actions he takes. There's no communication. There's no talk. His wife, Eve, names all of their kids. The Bible says he didn't even mention that he had any input in their names. When his boys rebel, he doesn't step in. There's no conversation between Adam and Eve recorded as he helps his wife process the trauma of being kicked out of the garden. There's no conversation process there as he um, steps in and and parents his boys and and raises them in the love and the fear of the Lord and helps them process that. There's no rebuke when uh, one of his boys uh, kills the other boy. If we keep going through marriages in the Bible, we see Abraham is married to a woman named Sarah. He becomes Abraham, she becomes Sarah. And he all but gives her away twice. Like he, she, she is taken as a wife by two other men and he does nothing to stop it. Like I don't know what that does to a woman's heart. I cannot imagine, but I can't imagine it being good. And then he takes a second wife. And that goes real bad. Jacob ends up with two wives because he's deceived by his father-in-law. Rachel and Leah. And it is the most heartbreaking picture of marriage in the world because they feud Rachel and Leah, Rachel and Leah trying to earn the love of their husband and neither satisfied with it. We see Samson and Delilah where a wife betrays her husband. We see Hosea marry a prostitute named Gomer even though she continues to go back to prostitution and he chases her down and gets her. And then she goes back to prostitution and he chases her down and gets her. And she goes back to prostitution. Jesus knows that pain. He knows because he calls himself the bridegroom. He is the true Hosea who is married to an adulterous and a wicked generation. Jesus looks at us and he often says, he doesn't say this that we're sinful. He likes to call us sinners adulterers. 
Because for God, it is not so much that you have made bad decisions, but that you have cheated on God's love. You have settled for somebody else's love, something else to satisfy your heart. Instead of intimacy with God, you have settled for these other things. And for God, from God's perspective, it feels adulterous and heartbreak. And Jeremiah, the Lord gets so heartbreaking, he actually says, I have filled out the divorce paperwork. He knows what that feels like. But friends, I just want to stop and encourage you because bad child-rearing, children who made terrible decisions didn't disqualify any of the people I just told you about. They were integral in God's mission to save the world, and bad marriages didn't disqualify any of the people I just told you about because they were integral in God's mission to save the world. And so not having perfect kids doesn't disqualify you from God's love or from usefulness in God's plan. And not having a, a perfect marriage doesn't disqualify you from God's love or from being useful in God's plan. If you are broken as a parent, if you have failed as a dad or a mom and you know it, you're in the right place. Like You belong here. This is the place for parental failures. If you have failed as a child, you are in the right place. We have an entire book of failures. Children who failed to love their parents the way they ought. You're in the right place. If you failed in your relationship as a husband to love your wife as Christ loved the church, you're in the right place. If you've failed in your role as a wife to honor and respect your husband, you're in the right place. There are no perfect marriages here. There are no perfect kids here. There's no perfect parents here. This is a place where nobody's perfect. You can save that stuff for Facebook. It doesn't belong in church. If we keep going through brokenness, we see when God turns to Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your earth. That the actual earth is cursed here. Later in Romans chapter 8, it will say that all of creation groans in agony. That the world hurts because of sin. I think about this week, I watched, I was sick, and so I got to watch a movie that I wanted to watch that Claire wouldn't watch. And so I watched a World War II movie uh, called A Bridge Too Far. Good flick. It has everybody in it. Um, but what blew my mind, what was hard for me to fathom as a, as a man who's lived in the United States most of my life except for living in Africa, I've never lived in a war zone. And so to see these gorgeous, incredible homes full of all their ornate uh, wallpaper and chandeliers and crystal and, and oriental rugs and everything just absolutely decimated and destroyed. To see farms and fields completely pockmarked by artillery rounds. The ground itself suffers from human action. And maybe for you Christmas is hard because of some natural disaster. Maybe not many of us, but many people not far from here are still reeling from two hurricanes and one two years ago where it feels like the earth mutinied against them, where weather itself conspired to destroy their Christmas, where they get to have Christmas in a FEMA trailer or a tent in their front yard or at their in-law's house or in a hotel room because their houses have been destroyed. Jesus knows what that's like. He lived on this earth 
in a place where the weather is not hospitable. He lived through drought and famine. He lived through storms and maybe even through earthquakes, depending on um, what histories you read. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to see houses fall down or to be destroyed by war. He knows what it's like to have the earth mutiny against you. And so if you've lost everything to a natural disaster, you're not disqualified. You belong here. It goes on and it says, your work will produce thorns and thistles for you. And, it will, and you will eat plants of the field and by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken. If you know what it's like to have your career, your work, not in the place you thought it would be, if you're disappointed because you're not going to be able to buy the presents you thought you would be able to buy this year, if finances are not working in your favor, if you are behind on every credit card you own and you've been turned down for every car you've ever tried to buy, Jesus came for people like you. You are welcome here. There are no people here who have accomplished every goal, who've done, set everything they've meant out to be. We all know the frustration of putting more energy into something than it should take, of having to work twice as hard to get to the place we thought we were going to go. We also know the place when it doesn't matter how hard you work, you cannot get ahead. Because the fall tells us that sometimes our work will just rebel against us. The fields that we have plowed and, and the fertilized and seeded will produce thorns and thistles instead of fruit. So if your career is not in the right place, maybe this Christmas is hard because you've lost a job and you don't know how to tell your family. Maybe if you're like the Clark Griswold and, and, and work is just not, you're just hoping there's a bonus check coming. You're in the right place. No perfect people in this place. No perfect people in this book. All of us struggle with working too much, working too little, with making work into an idol and neglecting our family. Half of me wonders if that's what happened to Adam. Like why Adam just disappears. He just pours himself into this soil. And he stops being a dad and a husband. Maybe for you Christmas hurts because of your body or because of death. You see at the end of this in verse 19 it says... Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, and for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Some of us, Christmas hurts because it'll be the first time we celebrate it without somebody we love. We feel the pain of death. A husband who died, a spouse who died, a kid who died, a mom who died, an aunt who died, a dog who died. Death is this aberration. It's something that still doesn't make sense to us, even though every one of us has seen it, even though every one of us knows we will die. I'm like you, you know that death is an aberration because of this. Some of you have watched someone you love. You knew they were dying for a decade, and you were still surprised when it happened. Like it, it's, you still felt like not ready. Because you can't be ready for it. You were, it it's an aberration. It's a it's thing that's broken in it. And so if you're hurt because you've experienced death, if you're hurt because you're missing somebody or mourning for someone, you're in the right place. That old Christmas carol says, Born that men may no more die. Jesus came. He not only knows what it's like to watch someone he loves die. We know that for a fact in Lazarus. 
maybe in others. But he also know that for a fact because his body shut down. And maybe for you this year, Christmas is hard because you cannot do what you once did because your body won't work. You can't walk as well as you used to. You can't pick up the things you used to. You can't reach the top of the tree anymore. You can't drive the places you want to. And so Christmas is just hard because you can't do it the way you want to do it. Welcome to the place where you belong. The place that was built so that you didn't have to do it all. The place where you that was built so that you could have help when you parent and marry and when you uh, do when you get old and when you're alone and when you mourn and ultimately when you die. You're in the right place because nobody lives forever here. Nobody doesn't age here. And the last things I just want to point out Is in Genesis chapter 6. We see that all of... Man, I'm always out of time. I didn't mean to say that out loud. I didn't say it. You didn't hear it. Please strike that from the record. Uh, I told you this last time. But in Genesis chapter 6, we see that God looks out on the earth. In verse 5, And the Lord saw how wicked the human race had come had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And so God calls this the flood. He preserves Noah through the flood, but it's not because Noah is a good dude. Like, it's not. We miss the point when we say the whole world's bad except for this one guy named Noah, and he was awesome. Like That is not Christianity ever. God doesn't choose people because they're good enough or smart enough or strong enough. Because if he did, none of us would be here. I certainly wouldn't be a preacher. I wouldn't be alive. God doesn't choose the smartest, the best, the brightest. God chooses the most surprising. God chooses whom he will choose is what the Bible says. Here, no one, no one, no one is righteous, not even one. It's easy for us to think that evil is something out there. But as Christians, we cannot buy the lies that what is wrong with the world is the poor, or what is wrong with the world is communist, or what is wrong with the world are the racist, or what is wrong with the world are the, the capitalists, or what's wrong with the world of the rich, or what's wrong with the world of the politicians, or what's wrong, with, what's wrong with the world is me. It's not a group of people, it's something in us. It is sin that invades every heart. And in this place, no one, no one is righteous. Not on your own. Everyone here is a sinner. You don't have to... And so if you know in your heart that you have desires that are destructive or broken... If you want to do things you know you ought not to do and you're powerless to keep yourself from doing those, you belong here. The Bible actually gives us a picture of that in the very next, at the end, after the flood. I actually have to get to the good news, so we're going to get to the good news. I was going to tell you that it shows a drunkenness. So if you're an addict or a drunk, if you struggle 
with addiction and powerlessness, then you are in the right place. God had something for you, and he didn't wait until, uh, the, he didn't wait until Bill W. found it. Though I'm thankful Bill W. did. I'm really thankful. But he didn't wait. He, he built something for you, and it's called the church. And the only reason Bill W. had to build something is because we failed so bad at being what God has called us to be. A place where every broken person who wants to know God and heal and follow Jesus is welcome. And God makes this promise, two promises to Adam and two promises to, to Noah. And I don't have time to tell you all of them, but I'm going to anyway. Don't you love what God does to Adam here? The first thing he says is he says, I'm going to send a serpent crusher. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the serpent crusher. Jesus will say that I came to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians chapter 2 says that on the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and made a mockery of him and his demons and principalities. Made a mockery of them. Made a show of them. I think about the way that uh, the great Hambino talks in Sandlot where he's always talking trash. Almost as if Jesus was just mocking Satan. And then he makes a promise, and then he, he provides for them, and he sacrifices animals to cover their nakedness and their shame. And then finally, he makes a promise to Noah. He says, there's going to be a son of Noah. No longer will I pour out the wrath of God on humanity, but I'll pour out the wrath of God on God. I will absorb the cost of your insurrection. And on the cross, we see Jesus, the Christmas one who comes to absorb the wrath of God, to build an ark for us in the cross and to carry us safe through the storm. And so friends, the first thing we have to be grounded and anchored in as a church is that nobody is perfect. All of us are broken. And, and this is a place for broken people. People who smell bad or look bad, people whose jobs are falling apart, people who've never made a right decision in their entire life. Walking in that doors is a right decision. And we celebrate every single right decision. It may have taken 10,000 wrong decisions to get here, but getting here was the right one. We celebrate. We celebrate every broken marriage that walks in that we get to heal and love. We celebrate that because we live in a world that is so full of it. Right now, there are families coming apart. Right now, there's kids who are medicating their loneliness and their pain with stupid stuff like vaping and alcohol and, and, and worse Right now, there are people embarrassed by the job they hold. Right now, there are people who are embarrassed that they never made it pro. Right now, there are broken people all around us, and we are the people who hear brokenness and do not respond in mockery, but respond like Jesus and said, you're in the right place. Can I pray for you? Can I pray for your son? Can I pray for your daughter? Can I pray for you as a mom or as a dad? Can I pray for your marriage? I don't have the answers. I'm, I've failed a thousand times. You want to learn from my mistakes? Can I pray for you? 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 Let's pray. God, we need you. We need you more than we ever have. And we need you because there's nobody help, nobody nobody perfect here we're all broken wounded people we need your healing god thanks for putting us in the hospital where we can be healed god forgive us when we get frustrated that the person next to us is a sinner 
instead of figuring out how we can love them and serve them and bless them and pray for them. God, humble the proud and lift up the humble. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Not because we have to, but because we get to, we're going to take up our tithes and our offerings.